Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to episode 10 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today we're joined by Dr. Alana Gurevich. Dr. Gurevich is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who graduated from the National College of Natural Medicine in 2007 and 8, and she's currently the part owner of two large integrative medical clinics on both the east and the west side of Portland. Her practice is very specialised and she treats inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD as it's known, as well as IBS and other gastrointestinal disorders. What I really like about Dr. Gurevich is that she uses individualised natural therapies to address the underlying cause of the disease, and she encourages her patients to take an active role in their own health care. Dr. Gurevich relies on a variety of natural modalities, including Chinese and Western herbal medicine, acupuncture, nutritional supplements, homeopathy, hydrotherapy, and dietary education. And pretty special, Dr. Gurevich was nominated as one of Portland's top docs by the Portland Monthly in both 2014 and 2016. And on today's show, Dr. Gurevich and I talk all about inflammatory bowel disease. She shares her own personal journey with it and how she works with people who are suffering from that disease and also the correlation between IBDs and SIBO. So I hope you enjoy episode 10 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Alana Gurevich. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So we actually had the pleasure of meeting each other in person at the SIBO Symposium in Portland, which was great this June. And you actually came on to uh, one of my little Facebook live videos and we did do a little bit of a discussion about IBD. So, uh, you know, this show is going to be all about um, IBDs and it's something that you specialize in. So I'm really looking forward to, to really deep diving this topic with you. I'd like to start off with your story. Like, why have you ended up becoming a naturopathic physician and specialising with IBDs and and SIBO as well? What took you to that path? So, when I was twelve, I started being very sick. I had a lot of diarrhea, abdominal pain, difficulty gaining weight. About at the age of nineteen, so seven years later, I was finally diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is one of the inflammatory bowel diseases. And I was very fortunate because my father, who was a physician, a psychiatrist, was going through his midlife crisis, and instead of having an affair or buying a car, he discovered alternative medicine. And because of that process, I went to see a naturopathic physician in Connecticut, and he basically saved my life. And so when I walked in to see him, I was on. 60 milligrams of prednisone. I had just been hospitalized. I was, you know, had a fever that wouldn't break until they diagnosed me with Crohn's. And um, after seeing Dr. Sensening, who was my naturopathic physician at the time, a year later, I was the healthiest I'd ever been. I was not cachexic. I wasn't wasting away. And I was actually living abroad uh, in Scotland. And I was like, I had energy and I was like partying and having a good time. And I realized that I was, for the first time in you know, seven years, or for as long as I could remember, I was actually healthy. And there was something about that experience. And, you know, it really happened when I was in Scotland, I had a conversation with this man who was also a college student, and he also had Crohn's, and he had been on a liquid-only diet for the last four months because he was so flared and so out of control. And I remember getting off the phone with him and 
my parents just happened to call for the first time in like weeks and I started crying because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get sick again. I'm going to, I'm going to be as sick as this person. And they were like, you've never been this healthy. I literally can't remember you ever being this healthy for the last five years, seven years. And that's when I realized, oh my God, my naturopathic physician gave me a life. Like I was dying. And it was because of that. I remember I came back from Scotland and from traveling abroad in college. And all of a sudden I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I had no idea what I was going to do before then. Wonderful. And and it so often seems to be the case where it's because of a person's own journey that leads them to doing something with a career to help others. I am so grateful for it. the hardest time in my life. I was the sickest I'd ever been. But if it wasn't for that experience, I don't think I would fully understand the power that naturopathic medicine has to help people get well. Wonderful. I mean, it's not wonderful to be sick, but it's wonderful that you now, uh, you know, it's led you to this path because, uh, you know, the world is thankful for it, for you being out there treating other people. I'd, I'd really love for you to just talk a little bit about what are inflammatory bowel diseases or IBDs as they can be abbreviated as, um, you know, what are they, uh, you know, what do they do to you and all the rest? So there's two, maybe three main inflammatory bowel diseases. Um, the first is Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease is an inflammation that can happen anywhere in your digestive system. So as high as your mouth, as low as your rectum, and everywhere in the middle. Crohn's disease also doesn't have to be relegated to one area. If you're looking at some imaging of a Crohn's disease bowel, what you'll see is what they call skip lesions. And so there are, like you can have parts of your large bowel affected and parts of your small bowel affected and parts of your stomach affected. So it really is a disease that can affect the entire digestive tract. The majority of Crohn's patients are affected at the bottom of their small bowel in an area called the terminal ileum and their large bowel. The other big inflammatory bowel disease is um, ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is just limited to the colon. Ulcerative colitis, it will start at the rectum and then go its way up through the bowel, and it will never go into the small bowel. It will only be in the large bowel. Recently, however, a lot of ulcerative colitis patients who are not progressing on treatments, they often suspect that it's Crohn's disease as well. And then the other one, celiac disease is another inflammatory bowel disease. That one is very specified about having a gluten sensitivity or a, a gluten allergy. And then there's a new one that's coming around called microscopic colitis. Um, microscopic colitis is when you do a colonoscopy and the colon looks completely normal, but then when you do biopsies of the colon and you look at it under a microscope, all of a sudden you're finding microscopic inflammation. And that is a relatively new condition or is being diagnosed much more widely. And what do these conditions do to you? It doesn't sound like it's much fun at all uh, to have that digestive tract uh, inflamed and, and compromised, which is what is caused with these diseases. So if you have ulcerative colitis, the majority of symptoms are rectal bleeding and rectal pain. Um, those patients can have upwards of 20 bowel movements a day, very loose and lots of blood. Crohn's disease is a little bit more notorious for having pain. Crohn's disease also has a lot of malabsorption, which means that uh, you can't, because your small bowel, where the majority of Crohn's is, is um, all about, that part of your intestine is all about absorbing nutrients. And so if you have an inflammatory process in the small bowel that absorbs nutrients, you end up malnourished. And so a lot of Crohn's patients, their biggest complaint is pain. And do you find that there's, you know, one irritable bowel disease, uh, sorry, inflammatory bowel disease over another that's like more prevalent or more common or are they about the same? I think it's a good question. I don't have the statistic off of my off the top of my head, but I think they're relatively more similar. It's easier to diagnose ulcerative colitis because you can do it with a colonoscopy. Um, if you have a disease in the small bowel and it's not just the bottom part of the small bowel, you have to have other means to find it. And what happens a lot of times with inflammatory bowel diseases is that they take a long time to get diagnosed because, you know, they don't want to put you through invasive testing and they're always trying to put the blame on something else. Oh, it's an allergy or, oh, you know, you're just tired or blah, blah, blah. So it does often take multiple gastrointestinal visits before they'll get diagnosed, especially with kids. And what can these diseases 
do to you? Uh, you've mentioned that there can be malabsorption, but um, can they lead to anything more sinister? A hundred percent, you have an increased likelihood of having colon cancer if you have an inflammatory bowel disease. Um, mm. Really, it, the quality of life when you are an inflammatory bowel disease patient in a big flare is terrible, terrible. I mean, you you literally your whole life is taken over by worrying about your intestines. And you know, a lot of people, at least in my practice, are always trying to control it only with food. And it's almost maddening for them because sometimes food does an amazing job of controlling inflammatory bowel disease. And other times it does nothing. But you know, these patients will restrict themselves to death because they're hoping for any type of control. Mm. And what what are the uh, signs and symptoms of these diseases? You've talked about rectal bleeding um, with ulcerative colitis. Um, if someone suspects that they have something like Crohn's, what what are the, some of the symptoms that they might be feeling? Abdominal pain, inability to gain weight, uh, diarrhea. There's a small subset of Crohn's with constipation. Um, anemias definitely happen. Fatigue is a big one. Sometimes dizziness if they're not absorbing their iron. It's just it's really poor quality of life. Yeah, and some of those symptoms sound very similar to SIBO, which uh, you know people that are listening to this podcast, uh, you know, either have SIBO or have an interest in SIBO. Um, so, how can one tell the difference between a condition like SIBO and? Uh, Crohn's is it is it literally that you just need to do the tests? So that's a very tricky question. Um, the first SIBO symposium, which was I think 2011 or 2012, um, I presented a case on inflammatory bowel disease and SIBO. Who was and she was an inflammatory bowel disease patient, and um, it turned out we did everything to try to control her inflammatory bowel disease, and nothing worked. And then we tested her for SIBO. And finally, we were able to get her into complete control just by treating her SIBO. So, and then when I presented this last time in 2016, again, I presented about inflammatory bowel disease and SIBO. And now all of a sudden there's this preponderance of studies that is finding that there's actually a huge correlation between SIBO and inflammatory bowel disease. Also, a study was just released, I think two weeks ago, that linked Crohn's disease to three different bugs, one fungus and two bacteria, and their overgrowth within a Crohn's GI. So the answer is we are now starting to realize how much SIBO and inflammatory bowel disease have in common. A lot of times what happens with these Crohn's patients is um, they'll go to the doctor because they're having bloating and they're having diarrhea and they're having pain and the doctor is looking for a Crohn's flare. And then the doctor will start them on some of the medications that we have to treat inflammatory bowel disease. And these are hard-hitting medications, steroids, uh, um, biologic agents which suppress the immune system. And these patients will not res respond to these biologic medications or to these steroids. And if you go back and you actually test them for SIBO, they're actually in a SIBO flare and it's presenting like an IBD flare because it's a lot of the same symptoms, but it's actually a SIBO issue. And now there are studies that are linking that correlation, which is brand new ep evidence. Mm, yeah, how interesting. Um, and I guess the um, if you are someone that has an IBD and you, and I'm wondering if if someone's presenting with an IBD that your recommendation or advice when you speak and they're having a flare is, hey, let's test for SIBO if we haven't already tested for it to see if this might be the, the underlying cause rather than your IBD causing you problems. So at now, what my baseline of treatment is, is I'll have a patient come in and the first thing I'll do is try to figure out where exactly is their disease. Is it mainly large bowel centric like you see or some Crohn's? It's called Crohn's colitis. Or is it like 80% of of Crohn's patients where it's mainly in the small bowel. If there is any small bowel involvement, the first thing that I'm going to do is test them for SIBO. If there's only large bowel involvement, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to test them, uh, do stool, stool cultures to figure out what's growing within the intestine. For a long time, my working theory about inflammatory bowel disease has always been this is a microbiome disorder. There is something wrong with a functional cell of your intestine, which happens to be external bacteria, and that's why you're in this disease state. Now the research is finally coming up with our naturopathic theories and proving them correct. And 
So in terms of the way that you like to treat people with IBDs, what, how do you approach their treatment? Is it all about taking, uh, is it all about their diet? Are you looking at pharmaceuticals or herbs? Uh, you know, is it lifestyle? What, what goes into treatment for you? The answer is all of those things. So the first thing you have to think about is how severe is their case? Is this a pretty mild case of inflammatory bowel disease that can be relatively well controlled? Or are they basically dying in front of me and we need bigger guns? I am very, very, very pro using some of the bigger biologic pharmaceuticals if it can get them into remission and if they have no quality of life. If they're a mild to moderate case, I think sometimes diet is enough. Or diet and supplementation for a series of years... I think can oftentimes get people under complete control. It really depends on the person and the severity of their disease. And does it also depend on how long they've had the disease um, in terms of how uh, invasive or mild the treatment needs to be? I feel like length has less to do with it than the gastroenterologist that they have seen. So uh, we have a medical system here in um, – the Pacific Northwest called Kaiser. Kaiser is an HMO, and so they're really big on saving money. So if you walk into a Kaiser office and you have a mild to moderate Crohn's, Kaiser, the gastro, is either going to do nothing or start you on a non-steroidal, very cheap medication. If you walk into a private practice office and they have reimbursement for their biologic agents, I think you might be much more likely to start with a heavier hitting medication, even if you haven't had it for a long time. So in my experience, unfortunately, there is no clear treatment. There are definitely recommendations for treatment, and the recommendations for treatment are if you have a mild to moderate inflammatory bowel disease, start with a lower invasive medications, and if that doesn't work, step up to the next one and step up to the next one, but that's not necessarily what's practiced, at least not in the States right now. Mm. I've, and I've had conversations with people who suffer from Crohn's, for instance, and they're in a terrible state, and they're Australians, and they've been told there's nothing we can do about it. You don't need to change or modify your diet. Uh, be prepared that we'll probably have to do some invasive surgeries at, at some point. Uh, kind of like just deal with it. And I, it just makes me so sad to see these people are suffering terribly and, and that there doesn't seem to be a consistent approach to how to treat uh, these diseases. I also think it is insane, insane that, uh, that they are saying diet doesn't matter. That to me is, it's bewilderingly insane. Nobody, if you were having an irritation on the skin because you are wearing a nickel belt, nobody would tell you to continue to wear that belt. Everybody would tell you, take off the belt and your irritation will go away. I'm not sure how the theory that diet doesn't matter and inflammatory bowel disease came up, but it could not be further from the truth. And if you look at the studies, there are a lot of small studies on just dietary interventions with inflammatory bowel disease. And what the studies find is about 70% of inflammatory bowel disease patients will do really, really good on the specific carbohydrate diet, which is like a paleo diet, um, but slightly different. And about 30% of people will do terrible on it. So there are definitely a lot of studies linking dietary interventions successfully to inflammatory bowel disease treatment. The problem is that these studies are generally really small eight people, 30 people, 100 people. And when we're in a medical system that's ruled by big pharma, where they have the money to fund these you know, tens of thousand patient studies, we don't look as seriously at small studies like what we have on dietary interventions. But the reality is we also don't need large studies for dietary interventions because our dietary interventions are not going to kill anybody like the biologic medications might, you know? Mm, yeah. And what type of uh, dietary modifications do you find work well with your patients? So generally where I start is with a diet called the specific carbohydrate diet. That diet is a monosaccharide-based diet. Basically, grains are out. Um, some fruits are out. Uh, sugars are out. Honey's okay. Mainly it's a meat and vegetable-based diet. Homemade yogurt is a big part of that diet as well. But uh, if you're going to do any dairy, it has to be aged. So there's no lactose or sugar still in there. That The theory of that diet is very based on putting the right branching of sugars into your body 
and uh, taking away things that we know to irritate, like raw veggies, veggies with seeds, veggies with skins. All of that is not able to stay in the diet because it just is an irritant, at least initially. And then as we get them under control, we generally increase the spectrum of what they can eat. And how long do you find that that, off, that takes to kind of get them in that first phase where they're really uh, restricting the diet through to perhaps maybe being a little bit more flexible or can they ever be flexible with their diet? A hundred percent they can be flexible uh, in the long run. I think that it takes somewhere between, I've seen results as quick as three days and I've seen results take as long as three months. Mm, sure. And can um, inflammatory bowel diseases be cured? Is there a cure for them or, or once you've got it, do you have it for life? That depends on who you're asking. Uh, <laughs> does a gastro think there's a cure for it? No. They say you're going to have inflammatory bowel disease for the rest of your life. In my experience, can you cure inflammatory bowel disease? Yes. Does it mean you're going to go back to living like a standard Westerner eating, you know, your McDonald's and your wheat gluten and your dairy. And I mean, I don't think, I think you're going to have to make some dietary modifications. Um, but I think that if you make those dietary modifications and you get under control, a hundred percent, you can stay under control. Mm. And do you have, um, is there research that is able to pinpoint what causes inflammatory bowel diseases? So that study just came out like yeah. literally like a week ago. I mean, it's kind of amazing. A week ago, they just pu uh, published a study. I think it was in the British Journal of Medicine um, that that found these three symbiotic bugs that are basically what they think now is the underlying cause of inflammatory bowel disease, or at least Crohn's, which is now the underlying cause of Crohn's disease. Uh, it was Candida tropicalis is one strain of Candida, and I can't remember what the two bacteria are. But basically, they, they did a bunch of cultures on a lot of Crohn's patients, and they found that these three bugs came up ubiquitously. That's really exciting to think that uh, that they may be getting closer to under, understanding what's causing it and potentially being able to prevent it. The, my big question is, how is Big Pharma going to figure out a way to make a probiotic pill, basically, that they can charge thousands of dollars for? <laughs> oh, I know. And it is it is so unfortunate, I think, that so much of our medical systems, both in the States, here in Australia and, and other Western worlds, um, but Western countries, are just so dictated by what the pharmaceutical companies can make money off. Or what they don't make money off. Which is why I think dietary interventions are so incredible with GI disorders. Mm, definitely. And even just from a symptomatic uh, control perspective that modifying one's diet, um, if you can get your symptoms under control, it may not be necessarily changing the core root of what's going on, but if you can feel better, you're going to be so much more likely to be willing and able to to do more, to focus more on improving your health and, and moving forward rather than, you know, no one wants to be kind of housebound or, or bathroom bound because they're just suffering so terribly from their condition. I also, I fully believe if your symptoms are better, because of choices that you're making, that means your disease is better. Like mm. I, really, I think it's that clear of a connection, especially with GI disorders. Symptomatically, if you're symptomatically better, then what you're doing is working and that means you're doing the right thing. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think there's a, a psychological component as well that when you do something, it works. There's the positive reinforcement. It's more likely to uh, encourage you to do it again. Um, so from a mental perspective, uh, if you know something is, is progressing forward for you, then you're happy to keep doing it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Who's at risk of developing an IBD? So there are two um, phases when people usually are diagnosed. One is you know, adolescence um, to, through your 20s, that's the biggest phase of diagnosis. And then there's a second phase that's like 55 to 65, which is a slowly, slightly lower peak. Men and women are actually fairly equal, maybe women a little bit affected more than men. There is a little bit of genetic components, or there used to, we used to think there was a genetic component. Now we think it actually has less to do with that. Um, so like Ashkenazi Jews are one. Um, I... I personally think, you know, my theory has always been if you have a history of lots of antibiotic use, 
that's a likelihood for getting Crohn's because you're changing your microbiome. Definitely. And I think that our overuse of antibiotics just has so much to answer for. Uh, you know, we, we are just destroying our poor little microbiome with antibiotics coming at us from every direction. You know, we're taking them orally. It's in our meat. It's, all, it's just everywhere. No wonder we're, uh, we're, we're suffering. Uh, are, things, are conditions like IBDs on the increase or are we just more aware of them now? I definitely think they're on the increase. Yeah. I don't have stats for you, but I think the predominance of it has definitely increased in the last 30 years. Mm. And with the people, with these two groups of people, when you see that you either get it, get diagnosed with it in your teens or when you're in your 60s, are the diseases the same or are they presenting differently depending on what age you are when it uh, presents? So I think that if you get it, uh, if you're older, it's usually a lot slower growing and it's a lot less likely to be virulent. You know, like you're a lot less likely to have an obstruction. Um, Symptomatic. And, you know, also I definitely have a subset of patients who got diagnosed at, you know, 50 to 60, mainly because that's the recommendation to get your initial colonoscopy and they find it just randomly on colonoscopy. So I think Mm. if you're younger, it's going to be they're finding it that nobody does colonoscopies on younger patients. So you're doing really bad and they're really looking for it. Do you find as well that uh, um, males or females are more likely to do something about it um, than the other? Like are women more likely to do something about their condition than men? Or do you see that there's kind of an equal spread of both women and men coming through your practice? I think that women by their nature are more in tune with their bodies and more likely to act on it. Mm. And if you leave it unchecked and you just, you know, if you're that person who's listening to this podcast who's saying, oh gosh, yeah, some of those symptoms sound like me, but I just thought that was just life, um, you know, and I know you've said that there's, you're a much greater risk of ending up with colon cancer. Uh, along with that, are there any, any things that you can be doing to yourself that are making you worse by just putting your head in the sand and ignoring it? So all of those nutrient deficiencies could be very serious. Anemia, for one, could be extraordinarily serious. So if you're having rectal bleeding, you know, if rectal bleeding is happening higher up in the intestines, it's not going to look like frank red blood. It's going to look like coffee grinds in your stool. And so if you're having bleeding, you might not even see that you're bleeding. Um, So uh, anemia is very serious. B12 deficiency is very serious. If you're not absorbing your minerals and your vitamins, then what's happening is minerals and vitamins are basically enzymes that work in the body. So what that means is they, your body has a trillion different functions that happens every second. And the cofactors or the enzymes are the things that make that process go. So it's like, you can't just open the door. You have to put the key in the door, turn the knob to open it. If you're not absorbing your nutrients, then all of these bodily functions that need that your body needs to function are not happening. So the nutrient issues are a huge deal. And what does nutrient deficiency do to you? Is it like are you feeling fatigued or like how do you feel when you're not getting the nutrients you need? Uh, so fatigue is a big one. Brain fog is a big one. Um, easy bruising, easy bleeding, neuropathies or numbness and tingling could happen. Uh, you know, with B12 anemias, with pernicious anemia or B12 deficiencies, you can actually get psychiatric effects. You can get severe depression, severe psychosis. Um, electrolyte deficiencies, which are basically mineral deficiencies, can cause dehydration. They can also cause psychosis. You know, like these are, if it gets out of control, these are big deals. And someone could be thinking, gosh, I've got, uh, you know, perhaps a, a mental disorder when in fact it could be all stemming from their gut, but they're, they're looking at where the output is, which is they're feeling it in their mind. So the studies are really amazing about that. They are now doing extensive studies on locating specific bugs of probiotics, which live in the GI, that affect your mood. So one of the things that I'm, you know, I, there's, I treat what I call psychiatry light, you know, mild depression and anxiety. And one of my most effective tools right now to treat it are using probiotics like uh, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, which is super proven at this point to work for anxiety. 
or uh, Streptococcus theophilus, I think, which has been linked to a deficiency of that has been linked to depression. So we're now figuring out that the microbiome that gets affected in our GI is actually affecting our mood directly as well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mm, and, and mental uh, issues such as anxiety and depression are just so common with people with uh, digestive disorders. I, I, I hear it a lot from people that I'm talking to and I see on forums and all the rest that anxiety and depression particularly are just prevalent in this community of people that are suffering. Yep, that's what I see too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, with my own journey, uh, just – and I was never – overly anxious or depressed depressed but I definitely suffered my you know my fair bouts of them uh I don't feel those things um these days now that my gut is in much better health than it used to be which is good but it's a journey you know um you know I don't think that I have now found the almighty elixir of health I just feel that I'm improved and I'm progressing forward <laughs> to wherever forward may be. I will tell you that the elixir of health, in my opinion, comes down to moving your body and exercising, eating food that is high quality, high nutrient dense, high probiotic fermentation diverse, and surrounding yourself with community that you love. If those three things are doable, I think that it probably fixes 80% of most disease. Mm. It's interesting you talk about that because as I came through my uh, my SIBO treatment and, and really that was just the beginning of my journey I've now discovered, um, I realized I had to address five key areas in my life and uh, I, the first one was just awareness. I had to start getting aware with my body, just starting to listen to it. I'd, I'd ignored or masked my sig- the signals from my body for so many years with over-the-counter pharmaceuticals and prescription pharmaceuticals that I'd stopped hearing what it was telling me. Um, I had to deal with my nutrition. I then had to look at my movement. And I'm one of those people that I'm either lying on the couch and so sedentary, or I'm training for a triathlon. Like there's kind of no in-between for me. And I had to really address how I moved. Um my mindset played an enormous role in my recovery and then my lifestyle. So the fifth piece being lifestyle, like I had to, I had to do a lot of changes to start living in a way that supported health rather than hindering it. So things like sleep and stress levels and the people that I hung out with and all of that, um, setting goals and intentions so that I actually stuck to my plans rather than falling over at the first hurdle that I came across. So, um, you know, I think that I think addressing areas are really important. Um, in terms of you know those five areas, as I call them now, the five key pillars to my health. Um, are there any other points that you think are important to to a journey to recovery? I really, really, really want to stress what you just said about sleep. Sleep yep. for me, the way that I describe it to patients. So I have I have a spiel. Like I have a couple of things that all my patients have to do. One of them is 20 grams of protein for breakfast um, for blood sugar regulation. The second one is being asleep before 11, being asleep before 11. The Chinese have a lot of rules about a lot of things. And one of their big rules is when different organs have different energy in them. So when the qi is in different organs of the body. And at 11 o'clock at night, the qi goes into your wood organs, which is your gallbladder and your liver. So... What happens, and I will tell people this all the time, and they're like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. What happens is you are laying on the couch, dead to the world, exhausted, looking at your iPhone or looking on the internet or watching TV at like 9, 9.30, 10. 10.30, 11 rolls around. All of a sudden, you're like, 
have this crazy bout of energy and you're like organizing your closet by color or you're like replying to every email that you haven't answered in the last three years because at that point your sleep or your chi is going into your wood organs. Your wood organs are the energy that it takes to grow a garden from seed. So you take a seed that's been hanging out for generations and you throw it into the ground and it will literally breathe life into itself force itself up through all of this dirt, double, 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 double in size, and now you've got enough tomatoes to fit the whole neighborhood. Like that, if you're not asleep by 11, that energy that should be used to fix your body and everything you broke in it all day long is now instead going to be used to pointlessly wait on the waste on the organization of whatever. And so my big rule to everybody is you have to be asleep by 11. I just I am I am laughing as you're saying that because I in the past have been so guilty of that person at 11 o'clock at night just f- like almost manically doing things where I'm like I'm going to do this and I'm doing that and and then 2 2 a.m. rolls around and I'm like I'm so tired and 7 a.m. when I wake up rolls around and I'm exhausted <laughs> so sleep for me uh, is the eternal uh, process in terms of me working on getting myself to bed early because I am such a night owl by nature. So if if you're working with somebody like me that is who is, you know, notoriously up to uh, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., how do you get them to then change their habits to get into bed bef- and asleep before 11 p.m.? So, do you know what my patients always say? They say I was on the phone texting somebody and I was like, Dr. Gurch is going to be mad at me because I'm not asleep yet. I grain it into them so hard. I mean, if you're asleep before 11, you wake up the next day and really the world is filled with butterflies and rainbows and flowers. You just feel so much more alive. And you, if you don't, if you're up till one, two, so wood time is 11 to one in the gallbladder, one to three in the liver. If you're going to bed at two or three in the morning and then you're waking up at seven, you know you are dragging the entire beginning of the day. You are not even getting going until four or five in the afternoon. And it's really, it's that awareness to your body and listening to what your body wants you to be doing that allows you to stay the habit of being in bed at a regular time. I find that since changing my sleep patterns and really, really focusing on getting into bed, uh, I now set alarms that that start going off at 10 p.m. so that I like it's my reminder like Rebecca, go to bed, and so that I can get in, get ready for bed, get into bed, read for a little bit, lights off, and hopefully the the plan is that I'm asleep by 11. And on the occasion now that I'm up later than 11, I really feel it. And it's really, it's a really interesting uh, experience for me because I never went to bed before 11 back in the day. And now I really focus on being in bed early. So um, it's interesting. It's really interesting to now just have that awareness piece. Like I feel it in my body. I feel my body saying, hey, we don't want to be doing this. We want to be asleep. We feel so much better when we're asleep. It I love that idea about setting alarms. I'm going to use it with my patients. I love that idea of reminding them. Um, yeah. Your body just, I mean, that's how your body, your body is supposed to be hydrated. Your body is supposed to sleep when it's dark and your body's supposed to eat quality food. It is. And it, and it feels so much better when you do it. Yep. I agree. When I, when I travel or if I'm uh, away with work or something like that and I don't eat the food that I normally eat. So my food these days is really, you know, I, I focus on getting the best quality nutrition I can. So I um, buy these beautiful organic vegetables and fruits. I choose pasture-fed meats, I choose good quality seafood, um, good quality dairy, which I can tolerate a small amount of that. So everything is really high quality. I do pay for it, but I'm not spending any money on junk food. I just don't buy any junk at all. But on the occasion where I'm not in my own kitchen and I'm away from home, my gosh, I really feel the difference in how my body feels when my nutrition changes. And when I, you know, if I've eaten out or somebody's cooked for me and they've used more processed food, 
wow, like instantly I can feel the difference that that makes. And I never felt that before because my day-to-day previously was what I thought was very healthy, but I was using, you know, foods, I was buying food, a lot of food from the supermarket that had been made in labs or, you know, big food production lines that came from packets, whereas now there's virtually nothing in a packet in my, in my food consumption. That's, it's like the difference between uh, drinking water or poison. You know, it really, it really, and the other thing is if you're eating a lot of processed foods, we know that the microbiome is going to be, the bacteria that those processed foods push are going to be not as healthy for you or not as beneficial as the bacteria that fermented foods push or that vegetables push or that um, pasture-raised meats push. You literally are growing a new body. And, you know, you grow a new intestine about every three weeks. You literally regrow your intestine every three weeks. And so if you're feeding the bugs in your intestine that are constantly reproducing good quality nutrition that they benefit from, that then the new GI that you are building is going to be healthy and uh, non-inflamed and able to absorb nutrients. And if you're feeling it crap, then you end up with a crappy GI, literally. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people when they say they can't afford to eat good food? And I hear this all the time and it does drive me a little bit crazy. What, what's your advice to people when they say, I just can't afford it? I can't afford to go and buy fresh fruit and, fruit and vegetables and good quality meats. Um, you know, if you, so buying in bulk, that's a big one for me. Buying in bulk is, um, it's probably the easiest way to save money buying really good quality foods. You're buying beans in bulk and, um, grains in bulk if you're eating grains and good quality organic stuff, a lot of it so that you get the bulk discount. Also, I'm lucky enough to live in Portland where everybody has a yard. And literally, the Pacific Northwest is amazing because everything grows here. It is not very much work to do a garden. Grow your own, then dry it. I mean, like these things are really doable. Also, in America, we have Costco. I don't know if you guys have Costco in Australia. We do. It's it's come out. It's here. <laughs> so Costco, in, in the last two two years or five years, Costco has actually become the largest supplier of organic foods. And what they're doing right now is they're having a hard time finding farmers to feed the demand of their organic foods. So now they're giving farmers loans to convert their soil to organic soil so they can Costco has more of a supply. Costco has become an amazing, amazing player in the organic food world. They have no antibiotics in any of their meats. They have no, most of their beef is now grass fed. You have a ton of organic options. I am kind of shocked at my love of Costco and the high quality of their foods. I had no idea. I'm so interested to hear that. And, you know, I think that's wonderful to hear that such a big player in uh, the food supply uh, industry is actually taking steps to supplying better quality food for us. It's revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, that just that is music to my ears. And and some of the things that I do and the tips and tricks that I give people when it comes to eating well but eating in a that you can afford. I buy uh, cheaper cuts of meat. So I've, I have my local butcher, my local fishmonger, and then I now have um, this gorgeous uh, company that are uh, based here in Melbourne, Australia with me, and they deliver fruit and vegetable boxes, which are all organic. And I've actually done a comparison and, and buying my vegetables from the supermarket versus buying a box of their produce. The supermarket produce is actually more expensive and it doesn't taste nearly as good and it doesn't last as long. And quite often when I cut open something, I might cut open a red pepper and it's all moldy on the inside from the supermarket, but the organic produce is just gorgeous. Um, But I also do bulk cooking. So I'll get cheaper cuts of meat that need to be slow cooked and I'll, you know, I'll pop them in a pot with a bunch of vegetables, slow cook it, then I divide it up, put it in the freezer. I've got really easy, quick meals for those nights where I'm busy running around uh, and I know that all the ingredients in it are quality ingredients and um, and then I don't have to grab for things. I don't have to get takeout or, you know, make bad food choices because I've already prepared my food. So that's a way that I keep my food costs down and much more affordable and still eat very good quality produce. 
I also, at this point, my family buys a quarter of a cow that's 100% pasture raised, and that's the that's the red meat that we eat all year. I never eat red meat if I'm in a restaurant. I just don't trust the quality of their beef. But we will eat a quarter of a cow, which actually ends up, all the cuts are about the same, and they're pretty cheap. You just have to buy it all up front and have a chest freezer. Yeah, <laughs> definitely need a chest freezer. And that's one of my, my goals. Uh, I don't have the space for a chest freezer at the moment, but, but that is one of my goals is to, to do that, buy a big side of uh, animal and, and then that's my meat. And I know the farmer, I know where it's come from. I, for, um, before I, just before I got diagnosed with SIBO, I spent 12 months working with the RSPCA, which is Australia's leading animal welfare charity. And uh, I remember talking to the head inspector there about what she did in terms of buying um, ethically raised and humane animal products because you know you become very aware of animals once you've worked in an an association or organisation like RSPCA, and she does that. So she said, you know, I go to the farm and I meet the farmer and I see how their cattle are raised and I build a relationship with them, and then I buy half a cow or half a lamb, half a pig, and that's my meat. So for those that can do it. Do it. <laughs> it's also so delicious. It's like, I mean, yep. a 100% grass-fed animal that was uh, fed a diversity of grass. Oh, my God. It's like the most delicious meat you'll – I actually – I literally cannot eat meat if it's not coming out of my freezer. It's that much of a difference. Mm. It, it really does show the difference at this point in time between Australia and the US. In Australia, yes, there are some grain-fed cattle, uh, but we have great access to amazing um, cattle that has been pasture-fed and finished here. And we are very lucky to have such good quality meat um, with our um, with the red meat that we eat anyway. And, you know, our neighbours across the ditch in New Zealand produce amazing lamb as well. So we're pretty spoilt here. And when I do come to the States, I really notice the difference in the quality of the animal proteins. It's very, very different um, for my palate because I'm just not used to eating grain-fed produce. That's amazing. You should be so grateful. I we I did a bicycle trip, uh, 2,600 miles, me and my husband biked uh, five years ago. And we were biking through cattle country in the US. And we would see these cattle and they were sick. They had abscesses and oozing wounds. And you know, they were, there was barely any grass. I mean, it was awful. And you know, when you have sick animals and you eat sick animals, you get sick. Yeah, we're we're lucky here. We've got uh, we've got a lot of land mass, and there's not many of us. There's only about twenty one million on this huge land of ours. So we're we're still we've got a long way to go before. Hopefully, we never get there. Uh, we're we're having these you know these roaming land animals penned and fed fed grain. It just it absolutely breaks my heart when I when I see that. We could talk for hours about our passion for food, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about the um, how you work with uh, Chinese medicine and then obviously I guess more what we'd consider more Western medicine in your approach, how you combine those two worlds. Um, so acupuncture is incredible for offering symptomatic relief. I mean, really almost immediately. Um, and so I use a lot of acupuncture. Almost every single one of my patients get needles put in um, because it will make them feel better. It will make them feel more relaxed for one, but it can decrease that pressure and that spasm quality to their pain that they suffer from in their GI. Also, it can help them build blood. It, it just, really, for symptomatic relief, acupuncture is amazing. Um, as far as naturopathic medicine, I feel like I'm very, very fortunate to treat the GI because I know anything that I give you in your mouth is going to get to the tissue that I wanted to get to in your intestines. That's I think that's really why I ended up focusing on the gut because if I give you something to take orally, it's going to take a long time to get to your heart and who knows if you'll ever get there. But whatever I give you orally into your mouth, I know is going to go to the organ that I'm trying to treat. And so I do a lot of anti-inflammatory medicines, you know, uh, probiotics, um, 
uh, herbs, and they're able to get exactly where I want to go. The other thing that I use a lot of is actually ozone. Do you know about ozone at all? No, I, I haven't heard of that. Um, ozone is a really, it's a gas. So the way that ozone is made is we take an oxygen tank and we run it through an ozonator, which is basically electrocuting those oxygens and breaking down their bonds. So an oxygen is a very stable molecule at O2, right? If we yeah. electrocute it, then what happens is we are breaking up those bonds and about 15 to 20% of that gas will reform in O3. So three oxygens bound together instead of two. The analogy that I always use is it's a husband, a wife, and the girlfriend. Nobody's happy in that situation. And so what happens is if you introduce ozone rectally to a patient that's having a lot of inflammation, in their, what's happening in their body is that inflammatory state is shooting off a bunch of reactive oxygen species, also called free radicals, and that's an O1. That's causing an inflammatory cascade locally on the tissue of the intestines because that single oxygen is also trying to bond, right? It also wants to be in a stable O2 bond. So if you introduce ozone rectally into a patient who has um, a Crohn's flare or, an, or a UC flare that's pretty active, that reactive oxygen species will bond with that third ozone and everybody gets happy. It's a very, very strong anti-inflammatory that works very, very quickly. That's really interesting. I haven't heard of that. I don't know. I'd have to go and do some research to see if that's even available in Australia. I would be surprised if it if it wasn't. I just don't think it's very broadcast. Mm, yeah, and, and quite often is the case that you don't know of these things until you go look actively looking for them. Uh, but there are definitely treatment options that aren't available in Australia that are commonly used in the US. So um, uh, That being said, an ozonator is not very expensive to buy to administer yourself. Mm, so, yeah. Um, so, and, and, so if you were to do it yourself, how, how do you do it? How does it work? Basically, so what we do in the office, how we do it, is we um, have patients fill bags. And so, you know, there's this bag with this really stable plastic, and they fill the bag, or we fill the bag for them, and then they go into the bathroom and they administer it rectally. So here is the problem with rectal. It's called rectal encephalation. You, the way your intestine works is the its entire job is to push things down and out. You know, you, you're trying to get a poop. And what I'm having patients do is push things in and up. So it's not going to be, the administration is not very comfortable. Um, usually what we see is an increased gas and increased bloating because literally I'm putting gas that's bloating them into their intestines. Uh, and also some people might have a bowel movement and that's really because the, um, the way the intestines knows that it needs to move the bowels is by stretch and where, you know, all that gas in there makes it stretch. So usually after the administration, you're a little bit more uncomfortable, a little bit more gas, a little bit more bloating. Um, but then the next day we see a pretty good decrease in their pain. Hmm. That's so interesting. I'm going to go and do some more reading about this because <laughs> I've never heard of it. Wow, that's interesting. And and how long does it last? Like in terms of the the so you say that you see decrease in pain the following day, but does that last longer than one day? So how often do you need to administer this? It depends on the acuteness of the flare. So if you're in a so there's a marker that we use a lot called a fecal calprotectin or a stool calprotectin, which is looking at white blood cells within the stool. The higher that number, the more acute the flare. So if you, a normal is under 50, borderline is between 50 and 120. So if you're at like a 600, I'm having you administer three times a week for like three weeks. If you're at a 120, maybe we'll do once a week for like four to six weeks. And you know, we're, we're always doing other things to reestablish the microbiome and to deal with inflammation, the autoimmune response underneath. But that right now is my go-to for acute flares. Hmm. Wow, there you go. As I say, you learn something new every day and I have learned something new today with that. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that with me. Um, what does the future look like for inflammatory bowel disease in, in your opinion? I firmly believe that within the next 20 years, the way we're going to be treating inflammatory bowel disease is with a pill of probiotic. You know, uber consolidated, very diverse probiotics. Like I, I think... We are now, the more research we do on this condition, the more clear we are that this is a microbiome issue. This is 
a bacterial fungal issue that's growing in the intestines. All the more this week as compared to last week. And so I think the future of this medicine is getting some kind of biodiversity biome into the GI. My, my hope is as a culture, as we realize the dangers of antibiotic use, the the antibiotic use will, the use of it will decrease and therefore there'll be less inflammatory bowel disease patients. But my theory is the way that we're going to end up clearing it up is by giving people high dose, good quality probiotics, which is where fermented foods come in so effectively right now. And just on fermented foods, what are the fermented foods that you like uh, to or advise your patients to use? Lacto fermented pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, homemade yogurt, miso, tempeh, um, kombucha. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of endless. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have, um, uh, oh God, Weston Price Foundation. Do you guys have that in Australia? Uh, I Well, we know of them. I don't know if they operate here, but uh, yeah, like they're known. Sally Fallon has this incredible book, uh, Nourishing Traditions. And it talks yes. to all about how to make your own fermented foods. And I mean, that is how we should be eating as a culture. And it's how we have eaten for a long time. We've just moved away from our fermented foods in more recent years in human evolution. Yep. It's how we kept food safe. It's how we <laughs> stored food. Are there times when you would, when it's not advisable for someone to eat fermented foods? If they're really, really acute, I want them on a very, very restricted diet, and I don't use fermented foods at that point. But as they're mm. coming out of their acute flare, I think fermented foods are one of my cornerstones. Mm. I know when I was coming out of my active SIBO treatment and my naturopath and I were looking at expanding my foods from my limited foods, uh, we started increasing, we started adding fermented foods and then just slowly increased it. And I started off with like a teaspoon of sauerkraut every few days and then just slowly upped it. And uh, And I eat those foods all the time now and I love them. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> It pays homage to uh, some of the foods. My my ancestry is French, Dutch, and English. If, you know, unless you're uh, an Aboriginal, um, you are you're you've come from another land in Australia. So, uh, you know, my ancestry is European, and I pay homage to some of that gorgeous European food, like sauerkraut. And uh, <laughs> my Dutch ancestors are looking up from their graves, going, "That's what we used to eat." <laughs> And it was delicious then and it's even more delicious now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an absolute uh, pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast. If people would like to connect with you, how can they find you? Uh, so my website is Kwan Yin Healing Arts, uh, K-W-A-N-Y-I-N HealingArts.com. And they can read a little bit more about me and they can get my contact that way. Wonderful. Well, it's been it's been a joy and it's been so interesting learning more about inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and I hope that uh, the listeners today have learned something as much as I have. So thank you, Dr. Alana Gorovich, for coming on to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. This has been a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoyed episode 10 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Alana Gorovich. She is just a wealth of information. I love her energy all around things GI related. Now, if you would like to access any of the show notes or links mentioned in today's show, simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash IBD short for inflammatory bowel disease. There you will find all that you need as a follow-on from today's show. Now, I love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave us a rating and review in iTunes or the podcast app that you use to listen to this podcast. And if you know anyone that has inflammatory bowel disease, don't forget to share this podcast with them because I'm sure that they will find so much useful information out of it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Google+, and you can find us by just looking up The Healthy Gut. 
Coming up on next week's show, we have nutritionist Christy Reagan, and she talks all about how to eat for SIBO. So that is a not-to-be-missed episode. If you are currently dealing with SIBO and you want to learn more about nutrition and the foods that we should and shouldn't be eating for SIBO. I look forward to having you join us on that show next Tuesday. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.